In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to continue our series on the documents of the Second Vatican Council, starting with Sacrosanctum Concilium, the document on liturgy. And in particular, we want to show you why the document was developed and what were the concerns for renewal. In other words, why did the Church think that the liturgy needed to be renewed and renovated? Please enjoy this conversation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I'm the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute. Um, and we are going to be continuing our series today on Vatican II, looking at the first document that was produced by that council, uh, which was the sacred constitution, or the constitution rather, on the liturgy. Um, the Latin name of the document is Sacrosanctum Concilium. Um, and if you missed our introductory episode, I offered an overview of what Vatican II was about, the reason it was called, what John XXIII's motivations were. Um, I really encourage you to check that out because it, it will, it'll ground you a little bit better in what this first document um, looks like. Um, I've got a bunch of different books in front of me that I've been using in my preparation, and I want to just um, once more say what those are. So this is Matthew Lamb and Levering. It's called Vatican II Renewal Within Tradition. I have no idea if you can see this, but it's Vatican II Renewal Within Tradition, Lamb and Levering. Um, then I've got the Vatican II Collection from Word on Fire. This I've been using a lot, and it's really, really excellent because it's only the four major documents, but it also accompanies each of them with um, quotations of the later popes since the Council, um, little excerpts from their documents that are relevant to interpreting the implementation of some of these documents. So it's really, really great. Um, and of course, Word on Fire made it, so it's beautiful. Um, I, I really like it. This is a harder one to get. It's the 16 Documents of Vatican II um, that's uh, got introductions by Doug Bushman. Uh, you can find used copies, but it offers an introduction to each document that's really, really nice. Um, so I, I'm glad that our Director of Communications has that book. Um, so thank you, Elizabeth, for letting me um, use that. And then this is just your classic little Vatican II 16 official documents. So today we're talking uh, about the document on the liturgy. Now, Vatican II started in 1962. The first session was the fall of 1962. 2,500 bishops met for several months, and when it was time to go back to their dioceses for Christmas, they didn't have anything. And it wasn't that it was a waste of time, but when they got to the council, there were draft documents prepared for everything, and there were some people within the Roman Curia that kind of imagined, okay, we'll just pass these out to the bishops, and they'll uh, vote on them, and they'll say yes, and then we'll, we can go home. And the bishops of the, of the world kind of didn't want to do that. Um, they wanted to really take their time and debate and discuss and pray and produce something that would be fruitful. And I, th I think it's it's been really good to see the fruit of those documents. Um, 
So this document is the first one that they produced, and it wasn't released until December 4th, 1963. Now, there's a certain logic to the liturgy being the first major subject that they would promulgate a document about, um, and that's because it, it indicates to the fathers of the council where the, the most important focus for the church ought to be, and that's in the liturgy. The liturgy is the center of everything. The document, Sacrosanctum Concilium, emphasizes the central role of the liturgy in the life of the faithful, and, and this is important to note, it's not just about the Mass. Because I think a lot of times when Catholics hear, even well-educated, well-formed Catholics, you hear the word liturgy and you think, Mass. Of course, the Mass is a liturgy, but liturgy is much more broad than just the Mass. So it includes the other sacraments, those are also liturgies, the Divine Office, um, sacramentals, devotions. It's it's a very wide category. Um, and at the high, at the heart of it, at the center of it, is the, the liturgy of the Mass. Uh, but this, it, this point needs to be emphasized. Liturgy is not just about the sacrifice of the Mass. And in the opening paragraph, the very first paragraph of this document, um, we get a really good sense of the way the Council Fathers understood liturgy, obviously, but even more broadly, the way that they themselves understood the goals of the council. So this is the, the, a, a quotation from the first paragraph right at the beginning of Sacrosanctum Concilium, um, and, it's, and I'll, I'll kind of break it up for you. So first I'll just read it, and then I'll kind of go back and comment. This sacred council, Sacrosanctum Concilium, right, that's where we get the title, has several aims in view. It desires to impart an ever-increasing vigor to the Christian life of the faithful, to adapt more suitably to the needs of our own times, those institutions which are subject to change, to foster whatever can promote union among all who believe in Christ, to strengthen whatever can help to call the whole of mankind into the household of the church. Therefore, uh, the council therefore sees particularly cogent reasons for undertaking the reform and promotion of the liturgy. So if, if you didn't catch it, there's four goals for the council uh, that, this, that this paragraph lays out, and it's because of those four goals that they want to start with promoting and reforming, or reforming and promoting the liturgy. Number one is to impart an increasing vigor to the Christian life of the faithful. Basically, that means to ensure that all of the Christians that, that, that are already, you know, in, in the church are living a life of actual discipleship. They're not just Christian in name only, right? They're, they're living disciples. Second, to adapt more suitably to the needs of our own times, those institutions which are subject to change. So that's a reform, right? That is to reform, notice, just the things, those institutions which are subject to to change. So not everything is going to be on the table, but anything which is subject to change, which can change, they want to make adaptations as they can. Third, to foster what can promote union among all who believe in Christ. So among Christians, we would call that ecumenism, right? Ecumenism is one of the big goals of the council, and it's one of the goals that John the Twenty-Third outlined in his um, opening speech on October 11th, 1962. Then the last point is to strengthen whatever can help to call the whole of mankind into the household of the church. 
And I think a way to describe that would be evangelization. So you could sort of say that the, the, the very first paragraph of the document on the liturgy says, we want to increase discipleship, we want to reform the church, we want to build ecumenism, and we want to have more evangelization. And in order to do those four things, we will be undertaking a reform and promotion of the liturgy. Um, so the liturgy, actually, the Council Fathers understood could help to serve all of these different areas if it was treated appropriately, if it was reformed, you know, in a sensible fashion. Now, this is just going to be our first episode on this document, so we're not going to get through the entire document, but I do want to kind of offer just a real quick drive-by of the structure of Sacrosanctum Concilium. What are all the different things that are talked about in the document? So, uh, chapter one is about principles for rest restoration and promotion of the liturgy. So this includes talking about like what is liturgy, the nature of liturgy, and then the idea of liturgical instruction and active participation. And you'll see those two are really closely linked, and, and sometimes they mean the same thing. Um, third, the reform of the sacred liturgy. Um, so there's a lot of different points under the, the idea of reform, like what are the general rules, um, what are the different things that we need to consider because of the communal nature of the liturgy, because of the pastoral nature of the liturgy, what about adopting the liturgy to new cultures and traditions, um, and then the liturgical life in the, in the diocese and parish. Um, all of that is under chapter one, so just to give you an idea, like the entire document has something like 130 paragraphs, 46 paragraphs are all in chapter one. So chapter one is huge, and it's got a lot of a lot of data in it for us. Chapter two is about the most sacred mystery of the Eucharist. So again, like it starts with liturgy, just writ large. Then there's a chapter on the Eucharist. Chapter two, chapter three, the other sacraments and sacramentals. Chapter four, the divine office, liturgy of the hours. Chapter five, the liturgical year. Chapter six, sacred music. And then chapter seven is sacred art and furnishings. So today in this episode, we'll talk mostly about kind of the lead up to the document on the liturgy, how, how this document came to be, and in particular, um, some, of the, some of the notes in chapter one, uh, so the first 40 some odd paragraphs. Not going to read the entire uh, document. I mean, even on Sacrosanctum Concilium, that would take a while, but we're going to do a whole series here. I cannot sit here and read Lumen Gentium or Gaudium et Spes. We'd never finish. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the roadmap. So with the document on the liturgy, liturgy being reformed, there is a very strong narrative out there today that, you know, prior to the Second Vatican Council, um, you know, the church had like a fixed liturgy, and everything was perfect, and we didn't need to change anything. Um, and then after Vatican II, you know, just every, everybody went crazy, everybody went nuts. Um, but it's actually not the case that the Council of Trent you know, definitively proclaimed a liturgy that, that, that then never changed until, you know, we got the, the new missile in 1970. Um, actually, in the 20th century, there was, there was kind of a long, uh, a long developing path of liturgical renewal. Um, and, you know, calling it renewal maybe is a little bit different than reform, but still there was a concern early in the 20th century that the liturgy needed to be more vibrant, needed to somehow connect to people better. And this doesn't mean at all, and, and this is not what the documents are saying, and it's not what I'm trying to imply, um, that, there, that there was something bad about the, the liturgy. 
but that it maybe it wasn't touching people's lives as deeply as it could have. Um, and what are ways that we can do to kind of foster a better devotion and better understanding of the liturgy? Um, so liturgy really, I mean, it has always slowly and organically grown and developed over time. Um, so, you know, for instance, the, the masses that were celebrated by Pauline communities in the beginning of the church, I mean, those definitely were not Latin masses that you would see after the Council of Trent. There's obviously some growth in between the intertestamental, you know, the, the New Testament age um, and the 1500s. Um, but, but in particular, really in the 20th century, the 1900s, we see little points of reform, of renewal of the, of the liturgy. So in 1905, uh, Pius X issued a document um, encouraging the frequent reception of communion um, and also sought um, later to restore chant in the liturgy. Um, so like one of the things that people kind of have in, in their imagination is that, you know, chant was just like always there. But in 1905, Pope, Pope Pius X was saying, we're, we're not doing this well enough. We need to bring it back. We need to renew this, right? It was, it was a renewal. Um, it might sound really weird to you that putting chant into something was renewal, uh, but it really was, and it was Pius X wanted the liturgy to be better, um, and so he took some steps. And lowering the age of communion is a is a pretty big deal. Um, to encourage frequent reception of the communion um, was it was a very big uh, change in his own day. Um, Pope Pius XI continued this work. Uh, he issued a document on divine worship called Divini Cultus in 1928. Um, and then in the pontificate of Pius XII, there was a, a very clear desire to renew the liturgy, um, and, and in a particular way, the document on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, draws really heavily on Pius XII. So one of the things that's, that's fun to do if you're you know, sort of a nerdy kind of person like me is as you're reading a, a document, any any church document, you want to pay attention to the footnotes that are being referenced. What documents are they drawing on? In the liturgy document from Vatican II, there are a lot of references to uh, the liturgical reforms of Pius XII. In particular, his encyclical Media, Mediator Dei, um, which uh, you know was connected with some of the earlier um, developments that, that, I, that I mentioned just a moment ago. Um, and in a special way, the idea of active conscious participation, full active conscious participation, is actually an idea that Pius XII really felt strongly about, spoke about, and wrote about in Mediator Dei. It doesn't come out of nowhere in the Church's document on the liturgy from the Second Vatican Council. Um, so at the beginning of the document now, um, what the, the first thing you get is a sort of a theology, a theological account of what liturgy is and what its function is in the church. And it begins, the council fathers begin by talking about the liturgy and, and connecting it to salvation history, which I love when anything is connected to, to salvation history. I think it's a really good thing for us as Catholics to kind of have a better grounding in a salvation history view. Um, so the, the, the fathers basically note this kind of pattern. In the Old Testament, God called a people to be his own, the Israelites. He issued covenants with them through mediators. So you have, you know, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, etc. Um, and God works miracles for these, for these people. He forms them. He, 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 reveal, he reveals himself to them. 
And in the end of the Old Testament era, God begins to send prophets to prepare the way for a definitive covenant between humanity uh, and Jesus Christ. So in the New Testament, we have Jesus Christ who comes, he fulfills the deepest yearnings of the people of the Old Testament, of the prophets of the Old Testament, and because he is the incarnate word, he gives us God's fullest self-revelation. So the, the pinnacle of revelation is the person of Jesus Christ. We, we, we fully come to understand who God is in the gift of Christ. He then, Jesus, sends the apostles, he commissions them through the Holy Spirit to continue the saving work that he wrought through his own passion, death, and resurrection. So the council kind of like goes through all this stuff and then wants to say that liturgy is basically prolonging the work that Christ originally came to do and later commissioned his apostles to do, and that the church has continued that work through, above all else, the liturgy. Um, so this is a quote from Sancto, Sacrosanctum Concilium number 7. The liturgy is an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. In the liturgy, the sanctification of man is signified by signs perceptible to the, sentence, to the senses and is effected in a way which corresponds with each of these signs. Liturgy is a sacred action surpassing all others. No other action of the church can equal its efficacy by the same title and to the same degree. So the church wants to connect liturgy to salvation history and then really establish that the center of the church's life flows out of the liturgy. It's the primary means by which we receive grace, and it's not just at Mass, it's also in the other sacraments, um, but it's also the means by which we enter into the mystery of salvation. So it the liturgy, in other words, is not just something that we go to, something that we are a witness to, but it's something that we're entering into. It's something we participate in uh, when we understand what we're doing. And there's there's a real emphasis throughout the documents here, and, and um, Pamela Jackson's a liturgical scholar wrote a, a chapter on this document in this book, from Lamb and Levering, which I'll keep talking about because I love it. Um, and she says that there's a, a real concern with the sacraments and the liturgy being understood as mystery and not just a rite. And that's not to denigrate the rite, the ritual aspect of the Mass or the other sacraments, but to, to think of it in the patristic way as being a mystery that we're participating in, that we're sharing in. And that is something that the Council Fathers really want to reawaken, that understanding. And to be honest, we probably need a reawakening of that understanding even today. I don't know that we've gotten that far in people knowing that when you go to Mass, you're entering into and participating in this mystery. I think we tend to sometimes still see it as something we merely are present for or, or are attending. But the Church wants to, in this document, say that's that's not what's going on. It's much more than that. So... This document is one of the places where we get the notion of the liturgy as the source and summit. And I say the liturgy because uh, people usually tend to talk of the Eucharist as the source and summit of the church, and that's, of course, that's true. But the document here actually is referring to the liturgy more broadly as the source and summit. And the heart of the liturgy broadly is the Eucharist, right? That's the most important form of liturgy. But anyways, the liturgy is the source and summit. And what the, what the document is trying to show us is if we don't 
participate meaningfully in that liturgy, it's not just that we miss out on receiving grace, right? If you're not going to Mass, if you're not receiving any sacraments, like, you're not doing yourself any favors. Like, that's, well, that is, that is one problem. I don't know that that's even the primary concern here of this document, as, as, I, as I've, you know, studied it and prepared for today. It seems to be almost at least an equal concern that if we're not really meaningfully connected to the mysteries of, of the liturgy, it will be very difficult for us to be an effective herald of the gospel to others. So if the liturgy is not being celebrated well, if it's not being understood well, if people aren't really entering into it, then it's really hard for the church to kind of reach out with this treasure. Um, so there's a, there's a symbiotic relationship between the renewal of the liturgy um, and improved participation in it and the mission to evangelize those who are outside of the church. And don't make, I mean, make no mistake, the Second Vatican Council really has a confidence that if we can do these things well, we will effectively evangelize. If we can renew the liturgy well, if we can, you know, in the document on the church, understand ecclesiology better, enter more deeply into that, then we will be better heralds of the gospel, better evangelists. Everything that the documents of the council are trying to do are ordered ultimately towards the renewal of, of Catholics and our being better evangelists at drawing others into um, the fullness of the faith. So I want to read just a little bit from paragraph number 11. In order that the liturgy may be able to produce its full effects, it is necessary that the faithful come to it with proper dispositions, that their minds should be attuned to their voices, and that they should cooperate with divine grace, lest they receive it in vain. So another, so just a little comment here. For the liturgy to do all it's supposed to, we have to be prepared when we enter into it. That's one part of the, of the uh, concern here. The Council Fathers continue, and they say, Pastors of souls must therefore realize that when the liturgy is celebrated, something more is required, listen to this, than the mere observations of the laws governing valid and licit celebration. It is their duty also to ensure that the faithful take part fully aware of what they are doing, engaged in the right, and enriched by its effects. So, after making this point, which is really two points, right? People, the laity going to the liturgy, participating in it, need to know what they're doing. They need to be paying attention. They need to be properly disposed. And pastors need to make sure that that's happening. So pastors need to educate the people, need to form them well, so that they can better enter into the mysteries. And I really like this line, when liturgy is celebrated, something more is required than the mere observation of the laws governing a valid and licit celebration. It's not enough, in other words, to just merely say the Mass or celebrate the sacraments and not break any rules. We need to be really in making sure that people that are participating in that, that are attending, are engaged, included, and have some idea what's going on. Um, many of you, you know, may have parents or, or grandparents who uh, were Catholic when, you know, prior to, to the liturgical renewal uh, of Vatican II. Um, I bet if you talk with them about what their experience of Mass was like as a kid, they probably had pretty, pretty little idea what was going on. And that's not to say that, like, they couldn't have understood it, but I don't think it was very common for a lot of people to really kind of have a clue what was going on. It, it takes a lot of work. 
I have personally been to the Latin Mass for um, several months, about six or seven months. I went only to the Latin Mass, and it took me a long time as an educated person who's got books and is, you know, following the Missal. It was hard for me to even figure it out. Um, so this is kind of the concern that the, the, that the council had is how can we make the liturgy make a bigger impact on people? Um, and, and so this is what it means when it transitions to this notion of full and active participation in the liturgy. First of all, I want to say active participation is actually a movement. Full active conscious participation, right, is an idea of Pius XII, Mediator Dei. And the idea is not that everybody needs a special job or a public role in the, in the liturgy, um, but it's, it's primarily that the faithful would have a better understanding of the liturgy that they are participating in, um, that they interiorly are present better, um, interiorly are aware of the, the mystery being celebrated. And the council also recognized that if priests are going to teach the people, they probably need better formation in the liturgy themselves. So the document actually says that priests need a more thorough training in liturgy um, and that they need to take account of the liturgy in all of the different dimensions of their own formation. So that if they're in, for instance, a scripture course, the biblical, uh, you know, the, the biblical theologian that they're working with should be able to not just teach them the scriptures, but also, as is appropriate, help them understand how that fits into the liturgy. Um, the moral theology professor should help them understand not just moral theology in an abstract way, but also, for instance, applying it within the sacrament of confession, those sort of things. Um, so let me read to you just an example of, of some of the concerns here. Um, this is from paragraph 19. This, this sort of hits at this idea of participation. With zeal and patience, pastors of souls must promote the liturgical instruction of the faithful. Liturgical instruction. And also their active participation in the liturgy, listen, both internally and externally, taking into account their age and condition, their way of life, and standard of religious culture. By so doing, pastors will be fulfilling one of the chief duties of a faithful dispenser of the mysteries of God. And in this matter, they must lead their flock not only in word, but also by example. So there is a concern for participation, for sure. But what that really means is just basically a better understanding of what's going on. Think of a completely non well, I can't, you almost can't really say non-liturgical example, but, you know, if you're attending a football game or a tennis match or something and you don't know the rules of the sport, um, it's really difficult to enjoy it, you know, at all. Um, if you don't know that, you know, third and 27 is a bad situation, then, you know, your team could be in third and 27 and you could go, oh, okay, third and 27, great. I hope we get a touchdown. Like, you, you don't get the, the drama of what's going on. I don't know the rules for tennis. I can watch a tennis match, and, and if I turn the volume down, I've, I've got no clue, no idea at all who's who's winning uh, because I haven't studied it. I haven't been formed in it. Um, same thing, I can watch uh, <laughs> I can watch poker when people are playing poker on television, and it shows the hand that they have, and I have no idea till like the person gets excited or gets mad if it's a good hand or not. So I don't understand it. So the documents here, uh, this, this, this section of the document is trying to encourage the faithful to know better what they're doing, and for pastors to educate them, form them, train them better. Um, and we see actually in paragraph 35 some of the concrete ideas that are to be used in the restoration of the liturgy. And I just want to go over a couple of those really quickly so you sort of see 
and we'll have more more comments on this as we we get further into the document so this is one of the um examples of where the document actually offers some sort of concrete suggestions first Paragraph 35, that the intimate connection between words and rites may, may be apparent in the liturgy. And then there's there's four points. Number one, in sacred, in sacred celebrations, there is to be more reading from Holy Scripture, and it is to be more varied and suitable. This is one of the things that, and, and you'll, you'll see it in more than one place. So in the document on the liturgy, it says, we need to read from more parts of the Bible than we are currently reading from in the celebration of the liturgy. It is to be more varied and more suitable and from whole, and more Scripture. Um, this is one of the really, really rich contributions of the Second Vatican Council, is that at Mass, we have a much wider range of selections from the sacred Scripture that we now hear than you did in the um, ordinary, extraordinary form of the Mass or... Um, the, the traditional Latin Mass, which had a, a much more condensed portion of the canon of Scripture that was being read at Mass. Number two, because the sermon is part of the liturgical service, the best place for it is to be indicated even in the rubrics as far as the nature of the rite will allow. The ministry of preaching is to be fil fulfilled with exactitude and fidelity. I like this line. The sermon, moreover should draw its content mainly from scriptural and liturgical sources, and its character should be that of a proclamation of God's wonderful works in the history of salvation, the mystery of Christ, ever made present and active within us, especially in the celebration of the liturgy. So not only should there be a wider reading of scripture, but then when the sermon is, and the sermon gets more emphasis here, so you need to do a sermon at Mass, especially on Sundays, Preaching needs to happen, and that preaching needs to be biblical and concerned with salvation history. Number three, instruction which is more explicitly liturgical should also be given in a variety of ways. If necessary, short directives to, to be spoken by the priest or minister should be provided within the rites themselves, but they should only occur at the more suitable moments and be in prescribed or similar words. Um, and then number four, Bible services should be encouraged, especially on the vigils of more solemn feasts, on some weekdays in Advent and Lent, and on Sundays and feast days. So just a real basic theme here that, that's, that's developed in just in this paragraph is how much more Scripture needs to be prevalent, that we're going to read from more of it, that we're going to preach from it, that we're going to have Bible services. And I haven't really seen many Bible services. You might see one. Lessons and carols during uh, Advent is, is sort of a Bible service. Um, you know, some in some ways, you know, uh, the Stations of the Cross is, can kind of be a, a Bible service. Um, you could do a rosary, which is a scriptural rosary that would be a sort of a Bible service. But what happens here in this first part of the document is, again, and again, as I said, I can't read to you 57 paragraphs or how, 46 paragraphs. Um, the, the document from the Council Fathers outlines the idea that we need to renew the liturgy. We need to do this carefully, and it is not to be done at just the individual level. So they do expressly, you know, state that some of the developments, some of the things that are going to be changing in the liturgy, need to that that needs to be coming from bishops, from you know diocesan councils, or even you know uh, higher authorities in the ecclesiastical structure. So priests are not supposed to be making these changes on their own, just deciding what's going to change. 
there are some discussions, um, and I'll talk about them a little bit more in the next episode, but about the role of Latin in particular, um, that we'll, we'll see there's, there is really a call to retain Latin. Um, but the, the, bottom, the bottom line is the document here on liturgy is concerned with, above all, forming better disciples by making the liturgy something they can more easily participate in and understand. And then if they're doing that, they'll be better evangelists. So it's it's both to renew the church within and to encourage people to come into the church from without. Uh, this is supposed to be done carefully through liturgical commissions at the diocesan level. Um, and there there is also something, I mean, this is, you know, it's a universal church. Uh, it's an ecumenical council. There's a discussion about enculturating the liturgy in areas that are being evangelized that have not had any kind of religious tradition, or maybe they have their own religious tradition. How much can we allow them to, you know, bring that into the liturgy? It doesn't—one of the weaknesses, certainly, of Sacrosanctum Concilium is that it doesn't give really specific directives for every single thing, every single possible situation, uh, but it does in every case say that the, the changes that, that, that will happen need to be done carefully and slowly. And it's a separate conversation that we'll have about, you know, how effective that was or what's the, the trajectory after the council. But just something I really want to hope that you see in this episode is that the primary focus about renewing the liturgy is not just to change it for no reason, but rather to make it something that can be more easily understood that can be more deeply participated in by the laity, so that they can though so that they can then go and be better evangelists um, when they've you know when they have left the liturgy. So again, this is as I said, it's a rich document, and we'll continue the discussion. Um, but for now, I just want to want to close it up with that, and I hope that you have enjoyed this episode, and will stick with us in this series because. We're putting a lot of work into it, and I think it can be really, really helpful for us to understand better what was the Second Vatican Council, which is called 60 years ago, and we still need to do the, the work of trying to understand it. So I hope this is helpful to you in that regard. Thanks. <laughs>